1: This is a CBC Podcast.
3: Hello, I'm Neil Kirkshal.
1: And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight,
3: fighting words 700 days after Russia invaded Ukraine, a Ukrainian Nobel Peace Prize winner tells us the war should not end until everyone in her country is free.
1: A fresh start requires a clear ending. Two and a half years after their president was assassinated, Haitians are still waiting to see whether acting Prime Minister Ariel Henry will step down as he promised.
3: Can't win for winning. A decorated Canadian athlete tells us financial compensation for Paralympians like her is long overdue. Olympians have been getting paid for years.
1: Getting down and dirgy. The Trump campaign plays a lot of surprising music at the ex-president's rallies, but busting out the Smiths has a lot of people saying, whoa, as in W-O-E. Forecast of
3: characters. In high school, Lily Gladstone and her classmate were voted most likely to win an Oscar. Tonight, we'll ask that classmate what it's like to watch that prophecy begin to
1: unfold. And uphill battle. A Toronto city councillor outlines his plan to make the city reverse its ban on tobogganing on dozens of hills. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that is a bit concerned, that is a slippery slope. Today, the Russian military accused Ukraine of downing a military transport plane, killing everyone on board, including dozens of Ukrainian prisoners of war destined for a swap. Yesterday, at least seven Ukrainian civilians were killed by Russian missile strikes. It has now been 700 days since Russia invaded Ukraine. We know how it started, but how will it end? Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says there can be no peace negotiations until the last Russian soldier leaves Ukraine, and at the UN this week, Russia ruled out any peace plan backed by Ukraine's allies. Oleksandra Matvichuk was one of the winners of the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize. She's the head of the Ukrainian human rights group Center for Civil Liberties. We reached her in Kiev.
3: Oleksandra, how do you define peace?
0: I define peace as a possibility to live without fear of violence and have a long-term perspective.
3: When people hear the word peace, uh, they generally think it's an end to the fighting in a conflict like this one. A peace deal is not on the table at the moment, we know. One day there will have to be one. But it, it's crucial to you that peace means not just an end to the fighting. Why?
0: Because I work with war crimes for quite a long time. I have been documenting Russian war crimes for 10 years already. And I know that people who live in occupation, live in gray zone. They have no tool how to defend and protect their rights, their freedom, their property, their life, and their beloved ones. And this is why for me it's clear this occupation is not a peace; it's just another form of the war.
3: Are you concerned then that Ukraine's allies will at some point perhaps apply pressure to your country and its leaders to make concessions on territory?
0: Ukraine will define our destiny because it's our responsibility. And the problem that this claims to Ukraine that we have to satisfy Putin's imperialist appetites and give up some territories, such claims are wrong and immoral. These claims are wrong because Putin will not stop its visual thinking that he will get a little bit more Ukrainian territory he will satisfy. I will remind that 10 years ago Russia occupied Crimea, Luhansk and Donetsk regions, and we have so-called Minsk Agreement. And how Putin used this time, he built powerful military base, he retreated, he with a group, and they planned this attack and start large-scale invasion. So from the history, we know that when you have a uh, deal with Hitler, you can't Uh, stop it without demonstrating force. And the life of people can't be a political compromise, and we have no moral rights to leave other people alone for torture and death under Russian occupation.
3: Why did you want to speak out now about this? Are you concerned that the international support or mood is shifting?
0: I hope that uh, these uh, problems which we have currently will be solved, because... It's not just a war between two states, this is a war between two systems, authoritarianism and democracy. And if he will not be able to stop Putin in Ukraine, he will go further. And that is why we now fighting not just for ourselves, we are fighting to restore international order, which was broke by Russia.
3: We mentioned in the introduction to this conversation that the war is entering its 700th day. Does that possibility of peace feel further away to you on this day?
0: I will remind that this war started not in February 2022, but in February 2014 when uh, Russia uh, invaded Ukraine, occupied Crimea and part of Lugansk and Donetsk regions. This war is going on for 10 years already. And Ukrainians want peace much more than anyone else. But peace will not come when country which was invaded stop fighting. Like, we have no other choice for current moment. We have to protect our freedom, our people and our country.
3: And if that means... The fighting continues for months maybe even years more
0: i don't know because Mm. it's half of the question is on the side of international community because logic of authoritarian leaders is always the same they attack the weakness so if for example we can imagine that ukraine will obtain the official invitation to nato it will be a way how to stop this war not to expand it because Putin will be afraid to deal with NATO countries.
3: Is that what you want the international community to do next?
0: I want international community to express uh, historical responsibility because we saw how a authoritarian coalition is formed uh, for current moment like Russia invaded Ukraine, Syria supported. Uh, Russia in General Assembly. China helps Russia to bypass the sanctions. Uh, Iran provides Russia the drones. The North Korea provides Russia with more than a million artillery uh, weapons. So, if authoritarian regimes cooperate, democracies have to support each other even more stronger, because freedom have no limitation in national borders. Our world is very interconnected.
3: Ultimately, though, I wonder how it feels for you to be a winner of the Nobel Peace Prize and say that that you don't want peace right now, or at least a partial peace as you see it.
0: No, no, I don't say like this. I want peace. I don't want occupation, which was pretended that this is a peace, because it's not a peace. Because I personally spoke with hundreds of people who survived Legal captivity in occupied territories because they were unloyal to occupation, and they told me how they were beaten, raped, smashed into wooden boxes, and their fingers were cut, their nails were turned away. These people have no weapons, and like you you can tell that there is no war on this territory, but there's not a peace. I want peace, not uh, the war which was hide under the form of occupation.
3: Oleksandra, I appreciate your time. I'm glad we could speak.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Oleksandra Matvichuk is a lawyer, human rights activist, and a Nobel Peace Prize laureate. She's in Kiev, and you can find that interview on our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. Charlie Rivard is a decorated athlete. She's won five golds, three silvers, and two bronze medals, competing for Canada as a Paralympian. That is obviously an astonishing success. And if she had won those medals as an Olympian, she would have been richly rewarded for it. But until today, Canada's Paralympic athletes have not been compensated for their successes on the world stage. But now that's changing. Starting with this summer's Paris games, Paralympians will receive exactly what Olympians receive. $20,000 for every gold, 15,000 for every silver and 10,000 for every bronze. And for Ms. Rivard, that's a game changer. We reached her at the Ottawa Airport after today's announcement.
3: Aurelie, oh, really, does this victory feel as good as winning all of those medals? Uh
4: yeah, it's a it's a such a big win a, mm-hmm. a different one of course. Um because I've been well, we've been working for this and pushing for this to happen for you know, over a decade, and uh, I actually never thought that I would experience this as an active athlete. Really? So uh, it just felt amazing to be able to be there and, and, you know, experience the the event today in Ottawa. It's
3: it's a day of celebration, certainly, and I can hear that joy in your voice. Have you allowed yourself, or does any uh, part of you think about the difference that 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 money could have made if this policy had been implemented sooner, I think it would have been one hundred and sixty five thousand dollars.
4: Yeah, so that's that's the first thing that literally everybody <laughs> spoke to today told yeah. me. To me, though, it's not as much about money as it is about a social decision that we made as mm-hmm. a country and as a, as a community to just value our athletes the same way. So I think it's going to have a long term impact too on
3: you know, the next Mm -hmm. generations of athletes. And fairness, really. Yeah. This performance recognition program is possible in large part thanks to a $4 million donation from a tech entrepreneur, Sanjay Malavia, who was at the event this morning. For our listeners who weren't there and haven't heard it, we're just going to play a little bit of what he had to say.
5: I've had the great pleasure to get to know many of our Paralympic athletes over the last few years, and every one of their stories has really uh, move me, I'm also a crier, I apologize, um, um, and uh, <clears throat> it, uh, there are stories of resilience and adversity that they have to overcome just to have the meaning and purpose to dedicate their life to something is already uh, tremendously inspirational, um, and um, and then once they get there, uh, they have to work hard like every other athlete does and from that point on there, what they are is uh, True Canadian athletes that represent all of us on the world stage.
3: He was clearly moved in, in that moment. But what does it say to you that it took a private contribution from him to make this a reality?
4: Um, all I can say is that I admire his generosity. Uh, you know, it's not everybody that wakes up one morning and decides to support an entire movement and its athletes and uh, you know I'm not gonna really think about what would we have done if it wasn't for him and mm-hmm. just focus on the fact that he's there and that's the solution that we found and uh, hopefully it will uh, attract more people to be interested in this in the movement and in supporting it uh, but for now like we we got what we wanted mm-hmm. we are we are going to get paid equally and that's what we wanted and that's all that matters. For
3: these athletes who win medals in the future and will get this money, what kind of difference will it make in their lives personally but also in terms of their careers?
4: Yeah, so I'm very, very curious to hear about the athletes who are going to start their their journey or, or start their career in Paris and talk to them in like four cycles and see if there was a real difference. I think that there will be an impact not only on the financial aspect, but also just knowing that your performances are, and you are, as an athlete, also valued equally as an Olympian. Mm -hmm. It makes such a difference on on your self-esteem as an athlete, on your will to stay in the sport, on how long you want to stay in the sport. Um, To know that you're supported, at the end of the day, makes an impact. And also, will encourage the athletes to make choices based on what's be, uh, on what's best for themselves and their career, and not on whether or not or what they can or cannot afford.
3: Just give our listeners a sense, if you could, how much are athletes paying out of pocket as they're competing?
4: Oh, uh, so it it, uh, it differs per sport. I'm going to speak for myself because that's what I know. Um, we have to pay for everything when we're not representing Canada. So training camps, swim meets, equipment, club fees, uh, you know, all, that, all of that is at our own expenses.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And then when we actually represent Canada, uh, then it's covered. But that's the thing also with Paralympians is that there, our reality is also very unique. Sometimes other, uh, some people are going to need more assistance. They're going to need more expenses for, like, wheelchairs or, or, or people that uh, are there to help them. So it it varies.
3: Clearly, you're, you're a focused and motivated athlete, a successful one as well. As we've said, you're hoping to compete in Paris this summer. Does this change motivate you even more? How does that... Factor into the calculations that you make. Um,
4: yeah. So yes and no. I I think it would have made a bigger difference if you know it was I was it was ten years earlier. Uh, but no, it, it is it is a little bit uh, a motivation. I'm just I'm just happy. I think for the bigger picture for the future.
3: What else needs to happen now to level things for Paralympians beyond this money?
4: Oh God. Well there's There's still a lot of work to be done because I think the ultimate goal is to see the Paralympic gold medals that are worth the same as the Olympic gold medal in the eye of the public um and so that that's gonna we will need a lot more work so in the change of culture in how we see the Paralympic athletes, how we view the Paralympic movement as well the the visibility that we have in the coverage that the games have. So, um, you know, there's still, there's still a lot of work to do, but I think today was like step one towards
3: achieving this goal. Aurelie, I appreciate your time. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And safe travels. Thank you.
1: Aurelie Rivard is a Paralympic swimmer and 10-time medalist who hopes to compete in Paris this summer. We reached her at the Ottawa airport. Records are routinely broken, but no one wants them to be. Last year, BC lost 2,511 people to toxic drugs. That's roughly seven people every day. That's the highest number of drug-related deaths ever reported to the province's coroner's service. Chief Coroner Lisa Lapointe delivered the news today at a press conference. There, she urged compassion and expanding access to safer supply.
5: I am very, very frustrated. More than that, I, I grieve with the families who grieve. Um, it's one of the rewarding things about my job, but also one of the most difficult things about my job is that I hear from people directly, and I hear from people who are devastated by the loss of a family member, a child, a, a sibling, a parent. Um, and they have been seeking help and there is no help available or there's a 30-day program or a 60-day program for which they mortgage their home uh, and their loved one dies after release because there's no continuum of services available. And then there are those people who don't have an opioid use disorder, who don't meet the requirements for a prescribed safer supply, but who are accessing the toxic market. 225,000 of them, estimates tell us, all of those people are at risk of death. We can see that not adopting the rational, thoughtful recommendations of these committees and um, panels has meant that we haven't addressed this crisis. We are continuing to watch. We are continuing to fall back on old patterns um, and assuming that somehow the old patterns that got us here will somehow make this better. That will not make a difference. We need to. Be innovative and brave and listen to the experts and take a different approach. Um, People who use drugs are not bad people. There are family members, there are relatives, there are friends. Sometimes for one reason or another, whether it's pain, things we don't know about or can't understand, uh, they are using drugs. We have to acknowledge that, whether we like it or not. And, and decriminalization or safer supply are not about encouraging people to use harmful substances. Not at all. As chief coroner, I encourage people not to use harmful substances, including alcohol, including uh, smoking, including ha- cannabis, including some of the things that I see people die from. But it's about recognizing that people do and doing the very best we can to reduce the risk of serious harms and death.
1: B.C. Chief Coroner Lisa LaPointe taking questions from reporters today. 2023 saw the most drug-related deaths ever reported to the B.C. Coroner's Service. If you were to look at a copy of my high school yearbook, you would be amazed, not by any embarrassing photos. I looked pretty much the same as I do now. Hair was somewhat bigger, but what I mean is, you would be amazed to see that I was voted most likely to become co-host of a national radio show. And all these years later, six or seven years, I forget which, here I am on As It Happens, telling you lies about my yearbook. But Lily Gladstone's peers had her pegged. Yesterday, Ms. Gladstone was nominated for an Academy Award for her performance in Killers of the Flower Moon, and some 20 years prior, a photo in her high school yearbook deemed her and a classmate most likely to win an Oscar. Josh Ryder is that classmate. We reached him in Seattle.
3: Josh, were these photos buried in in the basement somewhere, or have you always had them close knowing this moment would come?
2: Uh, So I've always had them. Well, they were in our uh, high school yearbook. Yeah. And yeah, I, you know, I think when Lily started getting Oscar buzz that uh, one of our classmates must have uh, remembered as well and put it on the Internet. And then the Internet has found it and ran with it. And uh, here we are.
3: You you are still in touch with Lily Gladstone. You're still friends. But if we go back to that period in your mm-hmm. lives, uh, were you in drama class together? Tell our listeners about that particular shot.
2: The photo was our senior high school uh, yearbook photo. So. Lily and I had been in, I think, three theater productions, if memory serves me correctly. Yeah, we've managed to stay in touch a little bit over the years and uh, a little bit more now that she's uh, getting all this recognition yeah. and this, this photo is getting some hype.
3: It's, it's a classic high school photo. Just the two, you, I mean, she, she looks kind of the same. You've changed over the years, but just that, <laughs> that energy of drama, drama yeah. class.
2: If I may, so I think our joke that I think didn't carry, um, (laughs) behind us there is uh, the American Gothic. So we are trying to recreate the American Gothic, but yeah, Lily is, God, she hasn't aged a day, and (laughs) I'm I'm a cook, and I... I got some city miles on me. (laughs) I did not mean to imply you've
3: aged by any means. It's just a photo that I think a lot of people can relate to. But what was it like on stage at that time with her in those productions? What were the shows you, you did together? Yeah, I mean, the one that
2: stands out the most was Thornton Wilder's Our Town. And Lily got to portray Emily Webb, who is the protagonist. And, you know, that's a a very kind of subtle play just about normal American life and finding the the richness and sweetness of just living. And I think Lily, you know, even at that age at 16 really just sunk her teeth into it. Mm -hmm. I think Lily has a superpower of taking little still moments and subtlety and just speaking volumes for those things. And I think that role really, uh, yeah, was really great for her. And then I remember another role she played Raven in our senior, musical, uh, The Robert Bridegroom. And that one was a little bit more silly. And yeah, I think I I would love for people to know that about her is like, you know, she definitely uh, can tap into that silly, playful energy when called upon. And those are some of my fondest memories of her.
3: Maybe there's an SNL uh, hosting gig in her future. We shall see. But first, but first, the Oscars, when you heard that that she'd been nominated, how did you react?
2: You know, I want to say I was surprised, but I, wasn't particularly surprised you know i think we've always known that lily uh is a really powerful and gifted storyteller so i was over the moon for her you know when she won the golden globes like man that was such a cool moment and like imagining her winning an oscar (laughs) Ooh, you know i don't feel euphoria very much anymore uh but I definitely feel euphoric uh, mm-hmm. thinking that she could go the distance.
3: Oh, that's a beautiful thing. You mentioned the Golden Globes, and I know you guys have been in yes. touch throughout awards yeah. season. How is she? How, what's your sense of how she's handling all of this?
2: I'm really proud of the way that she's handling this. Like, I don't think that she's a very uh, ego-driven person. She's super-duper grounded, and I don't think that this is going to inflate her uh, in a way That would be bad. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can only imagine being in the spotlight that much. It could probably be pretty draining. But uh, I think Lily is an extremely emotionally intelligent person and that she is up for the task and that she will continue to uh, show the world that she is full of poise and grace.
3: She came to your restaurant. uh, She did. She was recognized by the Seattle Film Critics Group for uh, a film Fancy Dance that she did. What was that dinner like?
2: It was so cool. Uh, She came with her family. So our restaurant is called Betty Restaurant and Bar. Mm. And her mom's name is Betty. So it was this lovely uh, little poetic moment. Um, You know, I've in seeing her films. I've got to see what she's been doing lately. So it was really nice to return the favor and have her uh, come here and and let her see, you know, what my life has been like. And then, uh, yeah, we got to go down to the theater and watch Fancy Dance, um, which is really spectacular. So if you have a chance, see Fancy Dance. It is great.
3: Noted. We will. Uh, Has this, all of this, you know, revived your dream? Um, no, no,
2: no. You know, I think here's here's, Lily is is really classy and I need to mimic her classiness. So, you know, this moment isn't about me. This moment is about Lily, like Mm -hmm. Lily... Um, has shown extraordinary resilience staying active in performing and you know I was but it was not a good fit for me Mm -hmm. and today I'm making ravioli and I'm in a much better spot making ravioli that's a beautiful thing yeah it is a beautiful thing and I think as wonderful it was to be recognized in that high school photo and to to get you know some of Mm -hmm. Lily's reflected glow You know, I'm not the same person that I was 20 years ago. And uh, I think that's part of just growing up is finding out what works for you.
3: As an outsider, we know what the Oscars will likely look like for Lily. What is that night going to be like for you and your other friends?
2: Oh, baby, baby. So uh, we just got approved to have a viewing party at our high school and our yeah. drama teacher is still teaching there, oh, and wow. uh, it's going to be like a little a little reunion. I think a big part of Lily's message is you know trying to inspire young people to yeah. enact change, and I think it's going to be really really powerful to witness. Hopefully, hopefully win. Fingers crossed, knocking on wood, mm-hmm. to witness a win with current students is uh,
3: yeah,
2: it's going to be magical.
3: Well, I-, I I thank you for your time, Josh
2: my pleasure thank you so much for having me on and go lily go
3: <laughs> take care
2: all right bye bye.
1: josh ryder was a high school classmate of oscar nominee lily gladstone we reached him in seattle It's hard to imagine that the situation in Haiti could have gotten worse, but it has. According to a new report by the UN, the number of homicides in Haiti has doubled, reaching almost 5,000 last year. One in 10 police stations have been attacked and kidnapped.
2: Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced the Vinyl Café with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Café with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Café. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart. And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts.
1: ...nappings have increased by more than 80%. And then there's the government. After the assassination of Jovenel Moise, Ariel Henry became acting prime minister. But two and a half years later, Mr. Henri has failed to deliver on promises to hold elections or step aside. Now several major figures in the country are demanding his resignation. Among them is Claude Joseph. He's Haiti's former acting interim prime minister and the leader of the EDE political party. We reached Mr. Joseph in Port-au-Prince.
3: Claude Joseph, we've heard how the United Nations describes what is happening in Port-au-Prince. You are there. How do you describe it?
6: This is a nightmare in Haiti, you know, totally under the control of uh, gangs everywhere. And the government is absent. The government is not doing anything to uh, fix the situation.
3: It was reported in September that Ariel Henry was set to step down by February 7th. Do you believe that will actually happen?
6: I mean, he has to step down because he signed a paper saying that he's, uh, he's, he's going to step down. He has to step down and everybody's asking the same thing. After two years and a half, he's not able to organize free and fair election. Uh, he's not able, as he said, to change, uh, the constitution as everybody's asking. So I think by February 7th, if he, if he does not step down, so we will have uh, a stalemate in the country because no one is going to recognize him as a legitimate uh, you know, head of government.
3: What happens if he does step down after that? What does the transfer of power look like? Who will be leading in that time?
6: I mean, political forces in Haiti, uh, uh, civil society organizations, uh, working together to define that that governance. And of course, we're not going to have elections the day after, but at least we have to have uh, a government that will keep its promise to the people.
3: Among the people calling for his resignation, uh, as, as you are, is Guy Philippe. And Guy Philippe, for our listeners who may not know, led a coup, a past coup in Haiti, recently returned to the country after serving nearly a decade in U.S. prisons for drug smuggling. How does that sit with you and the fact that you are in the same conversation uh, and pushing for the same thing?
6: Uh, As far as I'm concerned, as far as my political party is concerned, uh, we only think that the peaceful protest to uh, force Aguilar to step down. Uh, Political negotiation, uh, the way to go, not uh, violent means.
3: You mentioned two and a half years. That's two and a half years since uh, the assassination uh, of Jovenel Moïse. Do you accept any of the responsibility for for the turmoil uh, in Haiti right now, given the power struggle? Uh, that you were a part of in the, in the immediate aftermath of that assassination?
6: Uh, n- n- not, not at all. I'm a, a very conscientious man. That's exactly why I decided to step down myself. Right, right after the assassination, I decided to step down and i only uh spent three months three months as prime minister uh as an interim prime minister so i'm not going to uh i i cannot accept any of the legacy of 10 years 15 years uh to leave us that legacy that's why my political party believes we have to have this system destroyed because this system generates uh, inequality, poverty, and extreme violence. This system's only tolerates people who want to, you know, arm kids and young people so they can get power. So we are trying to define a new paradigm in politics in Haiti. This is what my political party is doing.
3: You want to lead Haiti.
6: Uh, my political party, of course, because we aspire to, to govern and change the people's situation and the country.
3: Given everything that Haitians have, have been through over the years, not just the last two and a half years, but particularly the recent violence and nightmare, as you've, you and others have described it, it will not be easy, I can only imagine, to get people to trust in government Again, at this point, any government. Earlier this month, a judge issued arrest warrants for dozens of high-ranking officials accused of government corruption, including former presidents and prime ministers. How can Haitians even begin to trust anyone in power?
6: Anyway, myself, I decided to go before the judge. I answer his questions, even though uh, I was not part of this uh scandal and i think we think in our political party no one is above the law however there are people who think that the judge did not respect uh the proper procedures but one thing that anyone knows in haiti there's corruption Mm -hmm. a proper battle or fight against corruption should be welcome and should be encouraged by anyone who was in power
3: Last year, uh, you of course know and our audiences may remember, the UN Security Council approved the deployment of a multinational mission to support Haiti's police force. It would deploy a 1,000 officers. And Kenya's high court is expected to rule on whether it can lead that mission as planned. So that's still in flux. But is that kind of help or or support something you welcome?
6: So we we believe that only... uh uh, technical assistance to the Haitian National Police can help in the situation. We, we know uh, too well the history of foreign intervention in Haiti. So what we need uh, today is uh, an entire uh, gang unit within the Haitian National Police that is well equipped, well paid and well trained and, uh, they, they can do the job if we have this unit in, in, within the Haitian National Police. Uh, there is no will, uh, to do this. There is no will. And, and that's why I, I think, uh, we do not welcome. And, and I don't think it's a good idea. We're not optimistic about the job they're coming to do in Haiti.
3: What would you like to see and hear from governments around the world? Canada, for example.
6: Yeah. I really would like them to, uh, To be sincere in their approach, uh, as they are with Ukraine, for instance, we need money that can stay here, that can really help the Haitian national police. They can help with the gang issue in Haiti. So we need that. And we need them not to pick winners. uh, Stop picking winners. Stop supporting those who cannot deliver for Haitian people.
3: Hello, Joseph, I appreciate your time. Thank you.
6: Thank you so much.
1: Claude Joseph is Haiti's former acting interim prime minister and the leader of the EDE political party. We reached him in (laughs) Port-au-Prince. The list of things that Toronto has tried to ban is a long and varied one. There's the time the city blocked the Bare Naked Ladies from performing in front of City Hall because of their band name, the time municipal authorities felt it was important to briefly ban street hockey a few years back, and last week signs went up at 45 hills around the city forbidding tobogganing. City inspectors said hazards and obstructions made the hills unsafe and steered people to officially approved hills. Today, Councillor Brad Bradford shared a draft of a motion with our producers. He plans to introduce it next week. It calls for ending the ban on all 45 Hills and replacing it with warnings that one sleds at one's own risk. We reached him in Toronto.
3: Councillor Bradford, your motion will be put forward officially uh, early next month. Why though is a warning in your view enough and better than a ban?
7: Well, the first thing that my motion intends to do is to lift the ban on tobogganing first and foremost, make sure that the kids can do the tobogganing and, uh, you know, find some alternative language to address some of the liability or safety issues. There are steps both as parents uh, and the city that we can take to mitigate those risks. But the idea that we're going to just unilaterally ban tobogganing in 45 parks seem completely out of touch and lastly i would just say you know a lot of people are really struggling right now tobogganing is something that you can do it's uh you know easily it's finding a stiff piece of cardboard and getting out there so it's affordable it's accessible and we don't want to take that away by forcing people to get into their cars or get on transit uh to, to be able to go out and, and have an afternoon sledding
3: Children, older children who aren't going out with their parents and teenagers who, who don't want to go out with an adult necessarily when they go out at all, let alone when they, when they want to go sledding. So do you think a 12 or 13-year-old who's out with their friends is, is well-equipped enough to, to look at a sled at your own risk sign and make those kinds of determinations on their own?
7: Well I can tell you they're not gonna look at the sign when the sign's not there anyways and that's what's happening. Uh the city is, is so committed to this policy of banning tobogganing, they keep posting these signs and, and the neighborhood comes out and, and tears them down, you know. So I, I would ask what good is a no tobogganing sign uh if, you know, the community rejects it so much that they're not even there. But you know what? Like twelve year olds, thirteen year olds, uh they're gonna be outside, they're gonna be active with their friends. Um, i'm sure there's a conversation with the parents that's how it was in my house hey we're heading over to the hill going to do some tobogganing and those are conversations that you can have with your kids at the end of the day the city needs to do what it can to mitigate the risk and try and create an environment that's as safe as possible so let's take the measures that we know that could actually be helpful Like putting up hay bales, like putting up snow fencing, Mm -hmm. making sure that there is an area that is clear and free of obstacles where you can safely sled rather than pretending that this isn't a problem.
6: I
3: believe the city, though, has said that in some of these cases, those efforts wouldn't be enough, you know, putting up hay bales and things like that, that there are other things in place in those parks that, that make it too dangerous.
7: You know what, and that's their view, and that's their opinion, but it really goes against generations and generations of well-defined tobogganing that's taken place in these parks. This is a, uh, a Canadian city. Tobogganing is a you know quintessential experience for people growing up in this country, and Toronto pretends to be a city for families, and this sends the exact wrong message. It's completely tone-deaf to say that you can't go to a local park and toboggan on the hill that you've been doing for decades.
3: There are um, always, you know, cases of injuries uh, and concern, not just in in this city. The Canadian Hospital's Injury Reporting and Prevention Program, known as CHIRP, logged more than 3,000 sledding and tobogganing-related injuries across Canada. Between 2016 and 2022, there were about 380 concussions as part of that list. So do do you feel confident that every single one of those, those 45 hills the city deemed unsafe really should be reopened?
7: I haven't been out and done a site inspection on all 45 hills. I've just, you know, mainly focused on one in my community. But I can tell you, when I look at the one in my community, there's probably 40 to 50-meter berth of wide-open area for tobogganing where the majority of the activity has taken place, again, for decades. And we've put up hay bales and we've put up snow fencing traditionally to manage some of those risks. So what that says to me is the city didn't do its homework and I would suggest there's probably many other instances and probably the vast majority of those hills, um, the reason they were tobogganing hills is because the community had identified them as, as great places to go sledding. So we delegate a lot of authority to staff to make these decisions, um, but that is about trust, and the trust has been broken in this instance because clearly... You can see, and I can draw on my own experience from the hill in our community. Uh, this is not a hill that needed to be banned. This was something that nobody was asking for. And you can look at, you know, the different medical studies and this one that you're referencing from 2016, mm-hmm. uh, and I would say, well, I want to know the numbers for hockey. I want to know the numbers for skating. I want to know the numbers for, you know, cycling on our streets. The reality is we live in a world of risk, and we can all assess those risks and uh, and take steps to mitigate them. The city has a part of that parents have a part of that, and there's own personal responsibility for people Mm -hmm. as well. But, you know, the city is trying to suggest that we need to wrap everybody in bubble wrap. And uh, again, I think this is a huge waste of time and resources, money, and effort for something that's not going to make a difference because people are out there tobogganing anyways, and something that nobody was asking for.
3: And on that that issue of risk, but also uh, to, to get back at something you were saying earlier, that people are struggling uh, and that they need outlets, there's been certainly a lot of discussion about those elements of this since since the ban came into effect. Just today, the Toronto Star published an article quoting a child psychologist about the downsides of restricting risk in children's lives. Uh what did you make of that piece and that that idea that th- this kind of little bit of risk can actually be a good thing for children.
7: You know what I wouldn't draw too much um you know experience from from tobogganing but I would say it is a formative experience I certainly have fond memories of that as a kid, uh, you know, sometimes you got the wind knocked out of you and you learned. Uh, so there is something to be said for trial and error. Um, you know, there, there's no failure. There's only learning. And again, if we, if we as a city are trying to create this bubble wrap society where there is no opportunity to take risk, to step outside of your comfort zone or to try something new, you know, you do worry about what that means for development uh, for all of us as people and, and as our kids. At the end of the day, people have tobogganing, been tobogganing in this country for hundreds of years. They've been doing it at these hills in the city for generations. The city's heavy-handed response is tone-deaf, out of touch, and uh, that's why when I go to council next week, I'm going to reverse this ban.
3: Councillor Bradford, thank you.
7: Thanks very much, Neil.
1: We reached City Councillor Brad Bradford in Toronto.